0: Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to the Built Revolution. We're here to engage the leaders, visionaries, and innovators who are revolutionizing the built environment. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Hi, this is
1: Gretchen Gagel with Continuum Advisory Group. I'm really thrilled today to welcome Michael Beer to our podcast on innovation. Michael is a renowned um, Harvard professor, emeritus, and consultant who's been driving improvement in the business community uh, for quite some time. Michael, uh, welcome to our podcast.
2: Well, it's great to be here, Gretchen.
1: Thank you. And uh, we had the opportunity to meet a little over a year ago for the first time at the Academy of Management. and, And I was so thrilled because I had just revisited your book, High Commitment, High Performance, How to Build a Resilient Organization for Sustained Advantage. And and I, I have to say that I'm I'm just a huge fan of yours, and I and I love this book. And as I said, I was revisiting it, and I was just looking at it this morning. How did you first get interested in the work that you're doing around driving high performance organizations? How did that all come about?
2: Sure. Uh, well, it it has uh, uh, multiple sources. The first, I guess, would be the first eleven years of my career when I chose not to go to academia, despite the fact that I just earned a PhD, uh, and uh, went to work for Corning Incorporated, then Corning Glassworks, now Corning Incorporated, and as an internal uh, behavioral scientist, and uh, uh, within a year or so, I began to get some calls from uh, managers who were... uh, facing a number of challenges or wanted to create, a, a better, uh, uh, more effective and high performing organization. Uh, for example, uh, I got a, early on after I got the corning, I got a call from a manufacturing plant that had just started up, uh, and, uh, had maybe 60 or 70 employees and, and they were in a very different business than cornings and they were concerned about it. It was a medical instrumentation business and they wanted to, uh, uh, to make sure that the quality was extremely high, obviously they we're concerned that most of what they had experienced in Corning's manufacturing plants, uh, traditional glass plants, uh, the culture there was not one that they thought would be sufficiently uh, engaging and involving and uh, and performing and, and and encourage employees to to do uh, uh, great quality work and 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 produce quality products. So they asked me to come and they had read McGregor's book, uh, The Human Side of Enterprise, where you recall McGregor uh, said, uh, argued that there were two basic theories of leadership and management. Theory X was more uh, top down and uh, more autocratic and assumed that people were lazy and, or, or needed to be controlled. And theory Y, which was, had more positive views of human, human nature at work. And uh, encouraged involvement, participation, and so over a two or three year period, uh, I worked with them to try to transform that uh, the culture there to build a culture because it was a relatively young plant that that really valued performance and quality, had high involvement, and uh, that turned out to be a very uh, uh, just a great startup, one of the best startups in the company's history and and the managers and the employees were enthusiastic about it i i I can go into it later if you want to uh and and on the basis of that one i got that success i got a call from a general manager who said uh, i've been a took over this division two years ago uh the business has been uh was not performing i cut costs but boy we're not achieving uh we can't achieve our capacity Uh, we can't achieve uh what we need to do, which is develop a whole bunch of new products uh, in a changing market that required more rapid product innovation. The company, the division had been in a, in a defense business where it was a you know price plus kind of competitive environment. It wasn't competitive enough it, it was very much. And so now new product development was a key and rapid product development. And so uh, we went in and, and, and did a diagnosis, worked with the general management and, and his team. And uh, uh, made a number of very systemic changes in the structure, the processes, the review of, of products. Uh, you know, again, uh, I've written cases on all of these things. And uh, uh, in about a year, at the end of a the year, uh, there was a management meeting. And, and by the way, in the division, there was a toxic environment. The functions hated each other. They, they were, there was a Cold War going on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, between a couple of f- key functions. At the end of the year, I went to a management meeting and he presented me with an oil can full of alcohol. And the uh, the, mm. the oil can said, uh, title was Emotional Oil Can. Because basically in about a year, we had changed not only the processes and the behavior, but the whole culture and atmosphere, uh, which had turned much more positive. And, uh, yeah, and there's... Yeah. <clears throat>
1: Well, and, and just to, to make a point here, because so many of our listeners, so many of the people that I'm that our firm is out consulting to are working on changing culture. And so when you say that we were so successful in changing the culture, what, what do you think was the key to success with that organization?
2: Well, you, one of the things I like to say about culture based on experience and also research is that culture is like you you can't change culture directly that would be like uh, scalping fog uh it doesn't work very well culture emerges from very specific changes multiple cha- multiple and i want to emphasize multiple changes you make in the organization's various facets its structure its processes its leaders behavior the senior team's effectiveness uh, the uh, the co- collaboration uh, mechanisms for collaboration you build in that structural and process oriented um, the way you review the business uh, the management processes if you will all those things have to change and that's exactly what we did in that division uh, there were multiple changes uh, and uh, those changes then changed behavior uh, began to re- lead to results. And those results, and, and people getting to know each other and collaborating with each other, because the structures we created—we created new product development teams. They didn't have any new product development teams. We dealt, made sure they were delegated full authority to uh, to work on those products with a very, very good review process with the senior team. They had none of those mechanisms in place. Just to give you some examples, and uh, and that those changes brought people together, and with the proper early early help and facilitation of those teams, uh, it cha- the behavior changed and then people and the culture changed to a more collaborative one because they were already behaving in a collaborative way. So behavior leads attitudes and knowledge. And it's something that uh, many change efforts to try to change culture fail to understand. They, they start with leadership development, or they start with speeches or they start with with videos. If you want to change your culture, stop asking people to change their behavior create mechanisms to change the behavior first and and then make sure that behavior is aligned with the strategic intent and values of the organization that's a basic premise right. on which virtually all of my work is based
1: yeah and and you you mentioned theory x and theory y and and i think you know that that book was written a, a while ago we're really starting to understand that that command and control style of leadership is not an effective style, especially when the world is becoming more volatile and organizations are needing to change more frequently is, is kind of what I'm, what I'm finding.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, that's uh, actually, I'm working on a cha- uh, on revising slightly a chapter I wrote, and that's exactly, uh, exactly right. That, that, that's the point I want to make. That, uh, command, no. control. so in your,
1: go ahead. So in this, we'll stick with this book for a minute and, uh, your pillars of high commitment, high performing organizations, performance alignment, psychological alignment, learning, and change. Talk to us a little bit about those pillars and, and have you evolved that model any over the last decade or? No,
2: I, I find not, those- not, no, that those three pillars, I still think are, are the right ones to focus on. You may call them different things. I chose to call them as I did, but, uh, no, the argument here is that organizations are systems, that there are multiple facets of the organization that have to be aligned, and it also has to be aligned vertically. That is, there has to be a, a, a when I say vertically, I really didn't mean to use that term. They, the, the socio-emotional system of the organization, people's hearts and minds have to be aligned as well with the strategy. So, mm-hmm. and, 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 and the purpose and, and values of the organization. So that's a kind of a basic premise. And if you think about it, in all my research, I really went back and looked at my research, other people's, I really realized that there were three fundamental outcomes that if you achieve all three, you will be able to develop sustainable performance over time. So mm-hmm. many organizations work on performance alignment. They realize that structure has to be aligned uh, with uh, the strategy. And if it is, that will improve effectiveness, the ability to execute. And if you are able to execute, you improve performance. So that's about the harder elements of the organization. Uh, you want to think about organizations. There are the harder elements and the softer elements, uh, the emotional, the, the attitudes, the skills, the, uh, and, and so on. And so that I think that's essential. You have to do that. And that's, by the way, in that business unit I just mentioned. And and I can mention many more recent cases, which I talk about in my current current book, uh, are really critical to that's what happened there. We changed the whole way in which new products were being developed, the mechanisms for it, the review of them, uh, the relationship between senior management and those teams so that there was a delegation for example, we asked the senior team not to intervene in the team except for reviews, and when they did by by habit, uh, we intervened, and we and eventually we, that that began to change, and these teams really took off. They took a lot of responsibility, and uh, the, and the first thing they did is they discovered three new products out of twelve or ten or whatever it was that, that shouldn't even be new products because it, it it doesn't look didn't look to them like there was really a good opportunity to meet the. Uh, the growth and cost-effectiveness goals that, uh, that that they've been given. So, uh, so that's the performance alignment part. The psychological alignment part says, well, you need trust and commitment. So the first is about strategic alignment. The second is about aligning hearts and minds to gain trust and commitment. That is absolutely essential. If you do not have trust, You can't have agility. Uh, You you can't have people essentially uh, uh, becoming committed uh, to uh, the the purpose and the goals and the values of the organization. They they're suspicious. Uh, They become uh, they they don't invest themselves. They don't go out of their You know, most organizations, people are relatively confined to their jobs. They don't reach out. They don't see problems and try to engage and change them. They can't speak up. And they know that there's a command and control structure that could punish them if they, you know, punish them either by not accepting what they say or by ostracizing them or even firing them. So uh, that, that has to change. Uh, in order to get at a trust level and the commitment level and the involvement level and the engagement level has to change in order for an organization mm-hmm. to truly sustain whatever performance improvements they can get. You can always improve performance by cutting costs. Uh, you can do that for a while. <laughs> uh, you can even get, right. get get it going for a while if you create the right structures. But unless trust and commitment is built at the same time, that is, the command and control structure changes more. More engagement, honest conversations, uh, and and so forth. The more, and I'll get to honest conversations because that's what my book is about. It's about these same ideas in that context. But anyway, that the more trust and commitment you get, and the third one uh, has to be uh, uh, has to be ch- you have to be able to change the alignment. Right. Even if you have a set of values that work for a while, you're going to adapt them. If you have a strategy, that strategy is going to change pretty rapidly in the kind of changing environment that you described. And so that Mm -hmm. the capacity to change is critical. And that capacity comes about by being able to speak honestly about what the qualities, what's going on in the organization, what is working, what is not working, why is it not working? And that's the basis of a lot of my book that, that uh, I told you I'm, I'm just sent into the publisher that we publish next year, uh, Fit to Compete. And it really argues that to get fit, that it's alignment, performance alignment and psychological alignment. Uh, we don't we don't have a very, uh, most methods are too, for change are too top down. They're not, there's no way to get people engaged in, identifying the areas on rapidly identifying them when uh, when they're prob- when things aren't working right like the new product development that wasn't working management knew that but people knew exactly why it wasn't working as people in organizations at all levels know what is going on what is not working what needs to change they even know what changes in strategy the organization needs to make based on uh, the experience they have in trying to launch a new product or Salesforce calling on customers. Uh, and so that capacity, what I call the capacity for honest, collective and public conversations, and I can get into more of this if you want to, that's all in the book, is really critical for the ability to uh, to adapt. I was just at a, at a, at a company called United Rentals uh, for the last couple of days as part of the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership's activities. We run visiting visits from our member companies go visit one of their one of the companies to learn more about it and I was blown away because that's exactly uh, what they did they they have become a dominant player in the rental of big big equipment for construction and other purposes and they've done it by by caring that's psychological creating a caring environment that's psychological and, my, and encouraging uh, and developing and having honest conversations with their many acquired company they've acquired something like a hundred companies to, to go to the size they are, but they, they're very straight about with these people about who they are, what they're trying to do. They listen to what they want. They create, uh, so that honesty in the way in which they talk is what creates the trust and commitment and the readiness for people to really get involved and, uh, and, and move from their acquired mentality and identity to the identity of, United Rentals. I was absolutely blown away. So it's very relevant to the problem we're talking about. They're very agile. They 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 have made these acquisitions. They've got some organic growth going, uh, and uh, they're they're highly successful.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. I was just talking with my uh, son yesterday, who was promoted. He's just a year less than a year out of engineering school and was promoted into a position where he. Hasn't ever run this thing that he's running, and I said, "Well, the number one piece of advice I have for you is listen to the employees. Right. You know, right. listen, listen to what they well, have to say about you. how things should be and, running. And, you
2: know, and, and what I argue for in my car, I actually start with a case on Benson, uh, uh, um, which is a global medical technology company I've worked with and and observed for thirty years, and uh, they've grown from one point five billion in nineteen ninety when I first uh, encountered them actually 1988 my first contact uh, to today they're a something like a 15 billion dollar company with sixty thousand employees worldwide and uh and they're over 100 years old and uh and have managed to to keep performing and uh they have been a, and, and the case i write about is where they say in 19 in 2000 that's chapter one of my book essentially uh, in two thousand, the senior management says look we 're not growing as fast as we need to, and we 'll continue not to grow unless we fundamentally reorient the company towards uh, a more growth and more innovation and i mean they their innovation was sort of product extensions it wasn 't creating solutions for companies which they needed they needed need to do, and a much broader approach to thinking about what they what they offering was for which they also made some acquisitions later but uh, basically, uh, they bought into this notion of honest, co- collective and public conversations using a methodology. We created the strategic fitness process. That's not the only methodology, but it happened to be the one we, we developed and they have, have been using over the years. In fact, four CEOs over the last 30 years have employed that methodology when they took over to go, to ask the question, what here, here's what I here's what I think we need to do in this era, in this strategic era that I'm about to lead. In this case, it was growth and innovation. Uh, at an earlier date, the first for CEO, it was about creating a, a, a global company, which the company had not been integrating, and, and they use this process. And what comes out is all the issues, and including the issues that we, and this is very important, including of the leader's effectiveness and the leadership team's effectiveness. And in fact, we've identified from many conversations that we've analyzed over uh, the 30-year period, but particularly in about two dozen organizations where we really did a a much more detailed analysis, that there are six core barriers to agility uh, and to effectiveness, effectiveness and agility, uh, that we discovered through just examining what people came back with over and over again in different organizations, in different industries. Uh, and, and uh, those are the secrets. The, those, we call them the silent killers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, they can like heart attacks uh, like um, cholesterol and hypertension. They can cause a heart attack in this case, not an individual heart attack, but an organizational arrest in their performance of some kind or another. And uh, this uh, and I'll be happy to go over those if you want me to, but uh, because I think they are key to uh, high effectiveness and agility and uh, uh, that I argue for in, in the book. And this company used this methodology and identified all kinds of things that everybody knew existed. The silence is not about people don't know. They know, but they can't discuss it and they can't discuss it collectively. So if you can't discuss it collectively Uh, you can't really make a systemic change back to the point I'm making. So task force came back with all kinds of issues that were systemic in nature, all the way from how capital was being allocated uh, to uh, the relationship between different siloed functions and activities to the fact that uh, uh, the the regions in the the company uh, had been more sales regions, but needed to become entrepreneurial and, and have more influence in the planning process. So, they went about changing the planning process. I'm not going to go into all the details, but they made some final systemic changes and, in fact, have done quite well uh, in, in the last five or six years since since that uh, honest converse- collective and public conversation uh, uh, took place. And a new CEO is probably going to take over in the next year or two, and they'll, they'll use the same methodology to, to really shape the next era uh, for the company, mm-hmm. the new strategic era, next strategic era.
1: All right, I'd I'd love to hear about the six deadly killers. I think um, having just done my PhD in agility and focused on what makes agile organizations, what are those six?
2: Yeah, sure, and, and they're not going to be a surprise. This is not Einsteinian physics. The problem is nobody is able to uh, to talk about it openly and deal with it. Uh, so the first one is these task forces. Over and over, came back with the fact when we what the task force the task force is created by senior management. They're invested with the strategy, and they go out and interview about 100 people worldwide. doesn't matter how large the company is, 100 is enough, at two or three or four levels below the senior team. By the way, we've used this at the corporate level, at the business unit level, at the regional level, but this is a corporate story I'm telling. So they go out and interview, and and, and when they come back, uh, they, come, they say, number one, the people we talked to said the strategy and the values of the company are unclear, in some cases... Task forces have come back. We have no human values. Uh, that is, people don't really and talk about trust being an important element. Uh, we can't. There's no trust because there are no human values. Nobody cares. Uh, or that's how people perceive it. Uh, the second barrier is the senior team. Uh, task force, 10 out of 10 task forces come back and say our senior team is not. Effective. What they mean by that is not necessarily the people individually are not effective, although sometimes that is a problem, but mostly it's the fact that the team is not really aligned together. They don't totally agree on strategy. They don't agree on priorities. So it comes, uh, yeah, by the way, the unclear strategy is also unclear priorities or conflicting priorities. Uh, So the senior team is responsible for that. Their ineffectiveness is the fact that they are talking about they're making decisions in their own activities about resources that are not not coordinated, not matched up. So not surprisingly, you can't get good coordination because they're working on X and uh, the other part is working on Y or at least putting resources in a different way to those things. So we can't we can't work together effectively. The third barrier has to do with the leader. The leader is either seen as two top down command and control, as we just talked about. Uh, which is, Bob, by the way, one of the reasons why the senior team is not effective, because he's not in using them and engaging them to work together on clarity of direction and also on having a, a clear review of things going on below. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. And, and, uh, and, uh, or they're too hands-off. They're too laissez-faire. They're not engaging their senior team or the organization in critical in conversations about critical issues and resolving conflicts, all organizations have inherent tensions in them, uh, and those tensions and those tensions are positive potentially if you work on resolving them. Whether they're issues of resources, strategy, uh, you know, product decisions, whatever, uh, those are the first three, and they all lead to what I call a poor or lower. Uh, an, an inadequate level of quality of strategy, because if you can't talk about strategy well enough, your team is not effective enough. The C manager is too top down. All these things interact to make it hard to create a clear direction. One of the essentials for sustainable performance, and that direction changes all the time. So you gotta to have to keep talking about strategy. Uh, I, there's all kinds of stories I can tell you about where that how that doesn't happen and why. Uh, the 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 fourth barrier is about coordination and collaboration. Uh, all problems of implementation of strategy, performance alignment that we talked about earlier, are a function of the fact that the organization is not f- creating integrating mechanisms uh, to allow and, in, and to allow people to work together effectively around critical problems. Whether it was new product development, as in the business unit I mentioned to you whether it's around innovation, uh, innovation, new innovations in the company, a version of new products, but it could not might not be products. It might be other other innovations. Uh, And that goes that that's critical. Uh, And so that one is related to implementation and execution. The fifth one, task forces come back. We have very little or inadequate leadership development. And we have, as a result, not enough down the line leaders to be able to take on initiatives, lead initiatives, lead cross-functional initiatives. So the organization is not developing its leaders as talent, leadership talent in particular, in a way that allows the organization to continue to implement and be agile. And uh, that comes because the senior team, it's all connected to the coordination and the lack of of product in uh, leadership development relates to the senior team in effectiveness. Senior teams are not really – I went to one organization that was concerned about management development, and uh, when we did this process around why is management development, they, they said, well, you guys are all fiefdoms. You send us the worst people, and you do, you keep all your best people. We're not developing people. We're not moving them across the boundaries of the organization. Uh, nobody understands what any other part is doing. Uh, so all these silent killers came up because they – they basically stopped leadership and management development in the company. So it's not about the programs they put in. It's about how we delegate to people, move them around. That's what creates leadership development, give them challenges. And the last uh, barrier relates to learning. It is the inability of ver- vertical, com- ver- poor vertical communication. We don't understand the strategy, the priorities. You haven't communicated them clearly. The senior team disagrees about them, looking down. But just as importantly, perhaps more importantly, we have known all the problems that we're reporting to you now, senior team, because the task force comes back and reports to the senior team. We've known about this for some time. People have been talking about these things for a while. So we've lost time. Uh, We could have fixed these problems a year ago. We can continue to fix them if we have conversations. So lack of ability to speak truth to power, no mechanisms for doing that no mechanisms for those honest conversations, no solicitation from the top. Tell us what's going on. Tell us what we need to do differently. Tell us about our own leadership. That kind of conversation does not exist in organizations. And so adaptation doesn't occur because the the learning process is the senior team learns what's not working below. They're able to change it. Uh, If the strategy is not right, they'll learn about that also. Uh, and, and so this, this learning process is a, is a vertical, an honest vertical communication about the strategy and then how well we're executing. So that communication has to go on and on. So adaptation can occur. The senior team can make changes in the structure or in the strategy, whatever is necessary. The bottom can, can begin to execute better when execution goes awry somewhere and they learn what stands in the way. If they can communicate to the senior team rapidly, there's adaptation going on. So that's where the capacity for change is really is really enhanced. If you have that that capacity to get this honest conversation going, not just about hard elements like you know product is behind schedule, uh, although there's many examples where that has not happened either, uh, and we get surprises, uh, but about also about the softer elements, the leadership, the culture, the, the co- lack of collaboration, the lack of coordination, and so on.
1: Right. Um, Mike, I can't wait to read your book next year when it comes out and remind us again of what the title is.
2: It's called the title is fit to compete.
1: Fit to and compete. And fit
2: means here is it's very much what's in the high commitment, high performance book. It's how do you create alignment and fit between multiple aspects of the organization and its strategic intent and values. Great. And you know, uh, so
1: and, it's yeah, go ahead. It's, it's so interesting. I was speaking to a group of officers for a very large um, company in the engineering construction space. And and I asked this question because I think about strategy as being a boat that we all get in. And I said, um, how many boats are there in the room? Are we all in the same boat or are we all in different boats? And unanimously, they said, we're all in different boats. I mean, we're not even going? in the same boat.
2: That's because there's no agreement at the senior team on what the boat is we should be peddling and where we're peddling it to. That's the quality of direction is poor. Uh, The leadership development, lack of leaders down the line and poor coordination hampers execution and lack of honest conversations of of being able to talk. We're all on different boats. We better talk about why that's happening and what we can do. That's the learning process. That's the honest conversations and learning process. And so often yeah, it so takes – go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: I, I was just going to say, tell us a little bit about the Center for Higher Ambition Leadership that you started.
2: Sure. Um, we, uh, you know, I, I founded a consulting firm, TruePoint, and, and uh, co-founded it with, with two others. Uh, and uh, we uh, have had many clients, and we said, you know, it would be great if we could work with some really good leaders. Uh, because we leaders, we work with are, are damage in some way or another. We're there to kind of help them, and we try to do that. We do that, but boy, what we ask, what we try to help them to do, would go that much faster if they were better leaders. So we said, let's go out and identify CEOs of companies, senior executives uh, who are running organizations that have performed above the fifty percentile point uh, for ten years in compounded annual. Profits compounded stock—it's all those statistics, ROI—and then we went online to try to find out about them. What 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 did we know through so their speeches, through the public, whatever pub- is public about them and the company? And we identified those that we thought uh, had uh, had the kind of. Uh, open value, openness and values of in- involvement and participation and concern for people that we thought was essential, uh, you know, based on some of the books on my high commitment, high performance book and our basic experience, the psychological alignment part was critical. So uh, we tried to find that we did, we, t- we identified about 45. And out of those, 36 turned out to be exactly the folks we thought they were going to be. We interviewed them in depth. Uh, we uh, uh, and and we discovered in the interviews that a lot of the things we assumed were true about organizations and make them gr- better and, and more effective and performing better were true. But one thing that we learned in addition to that was that all these people had a perspective on the purpose of the organization and the company being more than just shareholder value, that they were willing to invest. And this, of course, makes complete sense, given everything else we knew. invest in creating uh, a, uh, a, a, a value for not just the shareholder, but employees. So that meant they spent a lot of time and invested the, their personal time, but also other resources to try to improve leadership. Uh, again, back to one of the silent killers to try to, uh, to try to uh, uh, work uh, to create a culture that was caring and so forth to, to work about on, on their relationship with customers, invest in that relationship and you, again, build what I would call trust and commitment-based relationships with each of their, all of their key stakeholders, customers, employees, investors as well. Many of them went out to select, find investors who were willing to support that and so forth. And so we wrote a book, Higher Ambition, uh, How Great Leaders Create Economic and Social Value, social value being here, uh, both the external social value, what, what they do for the community and society, but also internal social value, the social capital they built in their organizations through developing a great culture, through better conversations and so forth. Uh, and uh, we brought these CEOs together to, who had been in the book and a few others that we thought were like-minded. And we, we held a conference at HBS and they over and over they told us, this is, this is really different. Uh, we're all senior executives, but when we get together in other CEO meetings, uh, we can't talk about this stuff. We'd be seen as wimps. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a literal quote from one of them. I, I don't know they all said that, but they certainly not did not all say that. But that was kind of the feeling we got. And so we said, OK, let's form a center uh, uh, for higher ambition leadership. We came to call it higher ambition because the ambition is beyond shareholder, beyond, beyond uh, profits. And, uh, and and these people all had an aspiration to build a great firm that added both social and economic value. And so uh, we, we created the center. We have a, we run a CEO summit. We get to get them together once a year where they cha- share their cases. They do hear some outside input too, speakers and so on, but but they really share their, their, their journey and get some and come in with the challenges they're facing and get, get advice from small groups and so on. And in larger plenary sessions, uh, we have created a, a leadership development program. We call the Higher Ambition Leadership Institute, a five module for, for their next generation of leaders. And it's been a huge hit uh, yeah. because it's a very deep, deep uh, leadership development experience. And the leaders that come out, they the CEOs tell us uh, they've changed people. Uh, mm. And they're helping me move the firm forward. Uh, we've, create a community of CHROs who also about what's the role of the CHRO working with the CEO. So we're building a variety of these visits that I mentioned earlier of each company visiting each other, all mechanisms of learning about how to move along this journey.
1: That's, that's so phenomenal. And I think I misspoke on the, on the name of it. It's the Center for Higher Vision Leadership. Higher Vision. um, Higher Vision. Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm teaching a course right now in the University of Denver MBA program online and leading with integrity. And we're having this debate actually right now in this course about, um, you know, kind of the Milton Friedman viewpoint versus other viewpoints of is the responsibility just to maximize profit or do, do corporations have a citizenship responsibility to society?
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's exactly right. That's what these these folks care about. But they the realization is that you just can't, you know, do some community work and declare yourself a higher ambition leadership organization. You have to actually right. transform the internal aspects as well. And you can't serve your customer unless you have trust based commitment internally, because you, you can't people don't know how to have trust based relationships. I learned that in nineteen eighty when I went to Hewlett Packard. And asked the top, and wrote a case on them and asked the top, this top management, you know, why are you successful? And they first said, first thing they said is we have great, our, our customers love us and they hate our competitors. Mm-hmm. I said, well, why is that? Oh, it's very simple because we trust each other. We have developed trust-based relationships internally. That to me was one of the greatest companies that ever lived. Uh, up until the mid nineties. And, and, uh, and that's why we can relate to our customers. So it's all one piece. What you do internally relates to how you relate to the outside, the ability to develop trust based relationships and changes your, your reputation, the community and society. And, and that's kind of this holistic systemic approach is what we're, uh, what we're trying to promote and teach, uh, our leader, the leaders, uh, and, and, and work with the CEOs to understand.
1: That's so great. Well, Mike, I, I could talk for hours with you on, on many, many different topics. I can't wait for your book to come out next year, Fit to Compete. In fact, we'll have to invite you back to The Built Revolution when your book comes out, and we can talk about it in more detail. But thank you so much for your time today. I'm, I'm sure our listeners have gained um, quite a few tips from you, and I know how busy you are. I really appreciate your time.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Built Revolution Pod brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Continue the conversation on Twitter at BuiltRevolutionPod or email us at hello at BuiltRevolutionPod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.